Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 29. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about a monumental work, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, number 3 in E-flat major, opus 55. This great work has generated an incredible wealth of commentary over the years, sometimes focusing on its role as a cultural icon, sometimes its influence on the emerging Romantic movement, and quite frequently dealing with how Beethoven's relationship to Napoleon is expressed in the work. We're going to concentrate as usual on how the symphony is put together musically, but I do want to say a few words about the Napoleon connection. I can't say that I'm going to clarify that connection because there are simply too many contradictions and opposing views to reconcile on the matter, but I'm going to at least try to summarize some of them. It's not hard to see why Beethoven would be drawn to Napoleon. Lacking an impressive physical presence and deriving from humble origins, Napoleon managed, by dint of his own personal genius and willpower, to rise to a position of enormous power, and he seemed, at least initially, to have employed that power to benefit the common man rather than the traditional ruling classes. Of course, Beethoven was more than self-conscious about his own modest origins and disadvantages, educational and otherwise, and it was only natural that he would see his situation as somewhat analogous to Bonaparte's. Anton Schindler, whose dating of these matters is often suspect, suggests that Beethoven may first have been inspired to dedicate a work to Napoleon in 1798, acquiring the idea from the French ambassador to Vienna. But it seems to have been the Napoleon of the earlier period, the all-conquering military hero and the first consul of the Republic whom he admired and Beethoven was not above finding fault with Napoleon's later actions. Writing in April 1802 to Hofmeister in response to a query regarding a possible new sonata somehow reflecting revolutionary principles, Beethoven states, Do you mean to go post-haste to the devil, gentlemen, by proposing that I should write such a sonata? During the revolutionary fever, a thing of that kind might have been appropriate. But now, when everything is falling again into the beaten track and Bonaparte has concluded a concordat with the Pope, such a sonata as this? If it were a Misa pro Sancta Maria, a tre voce, or a Vespers, then I would at once take up my pen and write a credo in unum, in gigantic semibrevs. But good heavens, such a sonata in this fresh dawning Christian era? No, no. It won't do, and I will have none of it. Beethoven does seem to be almost more annoyed with the Pope and Catholic Church here than with Napoleon, but he is clearly disappointed that his idol would have taken such a step. Regarding Beethoven's attitude toward religion, I've already referred to his rather unconventional and sometimes fluctuating perspectives on this subject. Born into a Catholic household, with his mother at least being a devout believer, young Beethoven was, as a church organist from an early age, very familiar with the liturgy and trappings of that institution. He seems to have developed very little sympathy for Catholicism throughout that process, but the tribulations linked to his encroaching deafness do seem to have rekindled something of an urge to call on God in his hour of need. I'm not going to try to deal with the nuances of Beethoven's changing perspectives on God or religion in general, but I would like to direct anyone interested in that topic to Maynard Solomon's excellent book, Beethoven Essays, in which chapter 15, The Quest for Faith, provides a very thoughtful discussion of the subject. But for now, back to Beethoven and Napoleon. Beethoven's work on the Eroica Symphony was clearly underway by the summer of 1803, so his disappointment with Napoleon's dealings with the Pope appears to have been put behind him, at least temporarily. Constantine Floris, in an essay on the Eroica Symphony, quotes a letter from Beethoven colleague Ferdinand Ries in October 1803 to the Bonn publisher Simrock, 
to the effect that the composer had a great desire to dedicate the symphony to Bonaparte. But if Prince Lobkowitz were to acquire the performance rights for half a year, which he ultimately did, Beethoven would simply call it Bonaparte. Of course, naming it Bonaparte would seem to be a serious step beyond simply dedicating it to him. Beethoven's dedications were generally to express friendship, to express gratitude for supporters, and to curry favor with those who might support him in some way in the future. Naming the symphony after Bonaparte might suggest, as it has to numerous commentators, that the symphony is in some way a musical portrait of the general. More frequently quoted is Reese's later letter, in which he describes in the spring of 1804 seeing a clean copy of Beethoven's score, with the title page bearing the word Bonaparte at the top. In the same letter, Reese describes how he informs Beethoven that Napoleon has just had himself named Emperor. Responding to this news, Beethoven becomes enraged and replies, in Reese's account, then he too is nothing but an ordinary man, so now he will trample on all human rights, indulge only his ambitions. He will place himself above all others and become a tyrant. According to Reese, Beethoven then tore the title page in two and threw it to the ground. A new title page soon replaced it, with the work now labeled simply as Sinfonia Eroica. Other accounts refer to the fact that on a second copy of the score, the reference to Bonaparte was erased, apparently somewhat violently. At any rate, it is clear that at this point, Beethoven has become disenamored with Napoleon, to say the least. And yet Beethoven continued to be of two minds regarding Bonaparte. In August 1804, a letter from Beethoven to the publishers Breitkopf and Hartel, he states that the Third Symphony is actually titled Bonaparte. When the parts for the symphony were published in 1806, they appeared with its present title of Heroic Symphony and was described as having been composed to celebrate the memory of a great man. Furthermore, Floros points to a recollection of a French officer who met Beethoven in Vienna in 1809, quoting him as saying, Even so, the greatness of Napoleon preoccupied him uncommonly, and he often spoke to me about it. Despite his ill humor, he realized that he admired the way Napoleon had risen from such a low station. That flattered his democratic notions. So, was the original intention here that the symphony be merely dedicated to Napoleon, an intention later viewed with some misgivings, or that it would be in some way a musical portrait or embodiment of his hero? If the latter, to what extent, if at all, can the work be described as programmatic? While there are questions surrounding the final three movements, there is general agreement that the first does indeed say something about Napoleon, or at least heroism in general. So we'll start there. It begins in 3-4 time, marked allegro con brio. It opens with two firm tonic chords, played forte, and distributed throughout the orchestra, after which we're introduced to the first thematic idea in the cellos. Here are the first four bars of the first subject, cello part only. The opening part of the first section of the theme is noble and, yes, even heroic, due in large part to its reliance on the notes of the tonic triad. Now, no one would suggest that the fact that this theme is built on a triadic arpeggiation makes it particularly novel. We've seen in these episodes a number of Beethoven themes that incorporate triadic outlines. In this case, although it's only the first part of the theme, one could argue that this is slightly unusual in that the opening melodic idea relies completely on an arpeggiation of the tonic chord. It doesn't incorporate a tonic triad, it is a tonic triad. And themes based so completely on triads have often been associated with heroism. 
in a popular late 18th century opera genre associated primarily with French composers and often referred to as rescue opera, triadic themes rather similar to this one, the opening bars anyway, are quite common. We'll say more about this type of opera in later episodes dealing with Beethoven's opera Fidelio. But suffice it to say for now that the plots of such operas often did revolve quite literally around the idea of a hero rescuing someone in distress. And so, triadic melodies, with their insinuations of military fanfares and bugle calls, were often considered appropriate. Of course, we've just heard the first four measures following the opening chords, and my excerpt cut off right before the theme takes a somewhat unexpected turn. In this upcoming example, I add in the viola line in the last three bars of the excerpt. Clearly, we're no longer talking about an heroic, triadic theme, plain and simple. The musical flow has been seriously interrupted by the appearance of an unexpected diminished seventh chord, built on C-sharp, one very alien to the key of E-flat major. If this really is a musical biography of some sort, should we ask whether the composer is trying to inject an element of doubt or uncertainty? And is he insinuating something about the heroic Napoleon, that things may not be as they first appear? Well, it's not likely. Beethoven introduces this diminished seventh chord at this point because, up to this point, the theme may be heroic, but it's not especially dynamic and it is, frankly, a little on the bland side. In other words, Beethoven introduces this chord at this point because the music itself, quite aside from any programmatic considerations, makes its own demands, requiring, right then, a little interjection of tension. In this case, there's a further reason, and it is that Beethoven is setting up a quite remarkable long-distance harmonic maneuver one that won't come to fruition for hundreds of measures, in which that unexpected diminished seventh chord is to play a very important role. And at that point, we may discover that, in a way, it is all about heroism, or at least about the conquering of obstacles. Here is the entire first theme. As you could hear, Beethoven recovers from the interrupting diminished seventh chord quite smoothly, and by the end of the first subject, it seems rather a distant memory. And as you could also hear, after the initial 12-bar presentation of the theme, the horns and woodwinds take over, playing with the opening four-measure triadic arpeggiation, and quickly beginning to hint at a modulation to B-flat major. This section began piano like the first, but even more so than the first, crescendoed powerfully, climaxing with a series of accented cross rhythms, briefly superimposing duple rhythms over the 3-4 meter. The first thematic statement eventually comes to a pause on an F major chord, the dominant of B flat major, 
with the modulatory transition yet to come. And it's an especially interesting transition with three new and very distinctive ideas. The first is very short, a descending three-note motive beginning with a dotted quarter note. It's heard on different pitch levels and assigned to different instruments, starting with oboe, clarinet, and flute. It's presented quietly and dolce at first, but later, as it takes on a slightly more dissonant quality, is introduced with sportsando accents. This subsection of the transition totals 12 bars altogether and ends on B-flat major. It's simple but very effective, almost like a poignant musical sigh. This is followed by another idea, even more smoothly lyrical than the previous one, with the clarinets introducing a new ascending line in thirds while the bassoons and lower strings are working in contrary motion to it. The initial idea is then extended and developed with a series of staccato eighth notes in the strings. Here is the second idea from the transition. Then the violins take over for the third idea of the modulatory transition. It's definitely less lyrical, more rhythmically active and insistent, and more heavily accented and tension-filled repeating a single little rhythmic motive several times as it descends down the scale, initially suggesting the key of G minor. As this third part of the transition continues, the first motive is replaced with another ascending motive in 16th notes, eventually coming back to an emphatic reaffirmation of B-flat major as it returns down the scale to end on the new tonic. Whereas the first two sections of the transition were similar in their general mood, this third section, including its rhythmically robust and rather full-textured, noisy continuation, presents a strong contrast. And by way of that contrast, the perfect lead-in to the surprisingly gentle, even sentimental second subject. It's presented in two related phrases, first in the woodwinds and then strings, which offer up a slightly extended variant of the initial woodwind phrase, aided by the return of the woodwinds who rejoin the strings and echo the final motive. There's little of the military or heroic about it, and the theme's most memorable characteristic is the yearning chromaticism that occurs in the third measure. Here are the first eight bars. The theme, or variants of it and motives derived from it, are then passed around from woodwinds to strings, with the tonality becoming briefly in doubt, although we end clearly enough on a dominant seventh in B-flat major. Here's the second eight bars with the more fragmented version of the theme, leading into a transition to the closing section. The closing section is again vigorous and forceful, with a theme related to the original heroic theme, but not identical to it. 
it accumulates volume and tension with a series of ascending sequences, and at one point makes use of a series of accented chords in a cross-rhythm effect reminiscent of the second statement of the original heroic theme. The music quiets suddenly for the introduction of the codetta, although downbeat accents are still heard in the first few measures. In general, though, the codetta returns to the more lyrical mood of the second subject, albeit marked with more across-the-bar suspensions. At the last minute, the more lyrical idea is again replaced by a series of aggressive staccato chords signaling the end of the exposition. We spend a fair amount of time just talking about the exposition, because it's a long and complex one. We're also going to spend some time with the development section, because it is, in many respects, a fascinating one. If this first movement is in any way to be thought of as a musical depiction of Napoleon as a conquering general, then the development section would seem to be the perfect place to suggest a battle with themes, motives, and keys chasing each other around and occasionally clashing, sometimes in surprising fashion. Does that description apply to this particular development section? Yes and no. This development section begins very quietly, with the repeat of a simple but slightly mysterious three-note motive, which, after a few measures, slips us into the key of C minor, the relative minor of E-flat major. Does Beethoven then turn to his heroic first theme? He does not. Instead, he turns to the quiet little three-note motive from the beginning of the transition, tossing it back and forth between the woodwinds, beginning in C major, but hinting at different keys as it goes, and joining it with new countermelodies. From that lovely little motive, all sweetness and light, we move suddenly, and somewhat ominously, to a presentation of the heroic theme in C minor. It's very quiet at first, but quickly begins to crescendo, and after only three measures, undertakes a rather abrupt and surprising modulation to C sharp minor. But with the change of only a single note, the G sharp switching to A natural, the tonality is transformed. The C-sharp minor chord becomes an A major chord, which soon shows itself to be functioning as the dominant in D minor. At that point, we experience two themes at the same time, fortissimo, the heroic triadic theme in the low strings, and the third idea from the transition in the upper strings, while the woodwinds repeat and sustain the chords above. The music quiets and the texture thins very briefly for a transitional passage, but then both themes return fortissimo, now in G minor.
As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the softer transitional passage then returns, eventually taking us partially through a circle of fifths progression. But this time it doesn't take us back to the heroic theme, but rather back to the delicate three-note motive from the beginning of the transition, heard first in A flat major. But soon, this delicate three-note motive, now split between woodwinds and first violins, itself begins to take on a more ominous tone as we make our way to F minor. The motive in its original form disappears for the time being, but we're about to hear a considerably transformed version of that motive. The rhythm and general shape of the motive remains intact, but the melodic intervals enlarge dramatically, the mode is switched to minor, and sforzando accents are added on beat two, just as they had been in the closing section when we encountered a similar rhythmic pattern. So the theme we encounter now isn't completely new by any means, but it sounds new, especially when it turns out to be the subject of a fugal passage, introduced first in the violas and quickly imitated, first by second violins and then by the firsts, against a rhythmically active countersubject in the cellos. Fugal passages in development sections are by no means a Beethoven invention, in fact, you might think they'd be a bit passé by this point. But it's not exactly what most listeners would have expected. As you heard, the fugal imitation did not last for long. It's soon overcome by a series of fortissimo, almost brutal chords with cross-rhythm accents. The first violins, and occasionally the seconds, struggle valiantly to keep the rhythm of the fugal subject intact, but they're fighting a losing battle in most performances against the overwhelming power of repeated chords above them and below them. This obviously sounds like the climax of the development section, after which we're likely to return to the themes from the exposition, although just how that's going to work out is hard to guess, since it would seem as if just about anything would be anticlimactic at this point. Of course, you could also suggest that the fugue represents the sort of mad flurry of activity represented by a battle scene, but what would the punishing chord repetitions that follow it represent? The complete annihilation of one army by another? It seems a bit far-fetched, and any such literally programmatic interpretations run into serious difficulties when we hear what comes next.
This elegiac E minor melody, supported by a wonderful countermelody in second violins and cellos, is exquisite but also nearly impossible to reconcile programmatically with what has come before. The introduction of a brand new theme into the development section is not unheard of before this point, but I'm not sure that any such theme has come as more of a surprise as this one. It's eventually reorchestrated with new countermelodies and eventually moves to E flat minor and beyond, changing its character in the process, of course. And as you heard near the end of my excerpt, it eventually merges into a restatement of the original theme, first in C major and then, rather ominously, in C minor. The development is by no means finished at this point. The elegiac episode returns in somewhat modified form, this time in E-flat minor, again surrounded by a contrapuntal web. It flows into G-flat major, and the heroic theme returns in B-flat major. We probably expect the recapitulation to be right around the corner, but not yet. Beethoven is not yet ready to release the tension. But at last, the texture is reduced, the dynamics soften down to pianissimo, and we're on the verge. We are so completely on the verge that Beethoven makes the horn come in three measures early in the wrong key. It's purposeful, of course, but at least one famous conductor was so affronted by it, he actually changed the horn's notes to fit the underlying chord. Nevertheless, after a long and exceptionally diverse development section, we have now come home for the recapitulation. There are still some surprises to go, but we're not going to hear all of them. But I do want to play the opening measures of the recapitulation so you can hear that very long-range surprise that Beethoven first set up in the opening measures when that alien C-sharp and the diminished chord interrupted the heroic opening theme. At that point, the tension was simply pushed aside, perhaps even forgotten, but never really resolved. But this time, the alien C-sharp doesn't resolve up a half-step, which is really the more normal choice, but rather down a half-step. And the effect is magical. It's as if the tension is completely erased, and we move off into a new key, F major. I'm not going to try to account for this unusual event in programmatic terms, because I don't think you can. But in purely musical terms, it's a stroke of genius, hundreds of measures in the making. Here are the last few tension-filled measures before the recapitulation, going into the recapitulation, and including the unexpected modulation just described. Are we finished with surprises? Not yet. We soon move to D-flat major, where the heroic theme is repeated, although Beethoven soon slips back into the original tonic of E-flat major with a clever chromatic modulation. This is followed by a modulatory transition, which this time only pretends to modulate, while quoting the familiar transition themes we heard earlier. The second subject arrives in the tonic key, as does the original rousing closing section and familiar codetta theme. And then we move on to the coda in an unexpected new key of C major, brought about by a clever but, again, unexpected resolution of a chromatic chord. And this new section, this coda, goes on for a surprisingly long time and actually constitutes a second development section complete with various key changes. 
the original theme is eventually presented again against new, coquettish little counter-melodies, as well as the surprising elegiac theme heard first in the development section. And near the end, there's a last quotation of the second subject before the big, bold, final, heroic conclusion. It's quite a movement with nothing quite like it, even in Mozart's and Haydn's greatest symphonies. But we have other movements to talk about, so we'll move on now to the second movement, a funeral march. But it's not Beethoven's first funeral march to substitute for the conventional slow movement. His piano sonata number 12 in A-flat major, opus 26, composed in 1800-1801, also employed a funeral march with trio for the slow movement, in that case, the third in the sequence of movements. And in fact, it was designated in the score as relating to the death of a hero. So this earlier work may have referred to Napoleon as well. But his hero was, of course, alive and well when both funeral marches were composed. Is Beethoven somehow referring to the death of an idea, of his original notion of Bonaparte? Is Beethoven simply looking ahead to Napoleon's actual death? When his hero did die some years later, Beethoven commented that he had already composed the music for his funeral. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, of course. It's a powerful movement with, as you might expect, some quirks of its own. It is also, as you would expect, mostly a somber movement, beginning with an obvious funeral march in C minor. It's also very long, at least 18 minutes, and unusually complex. The first section is like a movement unto itself, with two separate themes, the second a short one, a varied return of the first theme, and even a codetta with a brand new theme. We're not going to hear all of that, but I do want to play examples of some of the more important thematic ideas. The very ceremonial-sounding first theme, the Funeral March theme, relies heavily on dotted 16th and 32nd note combinations, but also the reverse of these. It starts in low strings, scored simply, with grace note triplets leading into each downbeat, perhaps suggesting muffled drums. Dark minor chords common to the key dominate, and some tension-inducing diminished chords are interspersed. After the 8-bar theme is presented by the strings, the oboe takes it up, an octave higher, supported harmonically by clarinets and bassoons, while the strings develop, the triplet flourishes more completely. Here are the opening measures of the first part of the theme. This ominous-sounding theme gives way briefly to a more composed and noble melody in E-flat major, temporarily evoking the notion of classical balance. But an unexpected chromatic diminished seventh chord and a pair of accented chords interrupts the flow and sends us cleverly back to C minor, where, after a few transitional bars, the original funeral march theme is given a varied and reharmonized repeat, which I don't include in my excerpt. Then a new version of the more noble E-flat major theme is reintroduced, this time in the oboe. But it is again overcome by the somber, dotted note funeral theme, and we return to C minor. Here is the first appearance of the noble theme in the relative major key, and the transition back into C minor that follows it. 
All of this constitutes the first thematic statement, which is followed by a transition, again featuring the oboe, which uses some of the same motives from the funeral theme, and takes us to a new melodic idea, which is often described as a codetta. What comes next is variously described as a trio or intermezzo or episode. It's in C major and begins with another lyrical, almost bucolic-sounding theme, again based on a triad, shared by the woodwinds. The drum-like rhythmic triplets that dominated the accompaniment in the first part of the movement are gone, replaced by gentle triplet-based chord arpeggios. After a few measures, the gentle pastoral mood changes and we crescendo into more heroic, military-sounding gestures, powerful chords, and throbbing, rapidly repeating figures in the lower strings. We'll hear the lyrical theme and a little of the more military-style gestures that follow it. As you could hear at the end of my excerpt, the quieter, more pastoral mood returns, but it's quite a bit different this time, moving to F major and then later to D minor, where it introduces a new episode, also based on triplets, but with an offbeat feel. The bucolic theme soon returns, and again we crescendo back to the heavily accented powerful chords we heard before, before cadencing back on C major. Then the funeral march theme recurs, but it's not at all a simple recapitulation. The theme is quoted and then almost immediately is interrupted by a fugue based on an ascending stepwise theme. Simple, but very noble and effective.
Even after the fugal imitation has come to an end, this really remarkable and extraordinarily dramatic development section continues on for some time. Eventually, though, we arrive at a free recapitulation of the entire first section of the movement. The original march theme enriched now with wonderful contramelodies, some drawn from earlier triplet motives. Finally, there is a coda, a long one which features, among other things, another change in mood, one that might be described as ethereal resignation, until finally one last hesitating quote of the funeral march theme and the movement comes to a quiet close. This is such a long and complex movement, we're barely scratching the surface here. But I do want to play one more example from the coda, where the ethereal theme is introduced. It's in A-flat major, but it eventually makes its way back to C minor for the final references to the funeral march theme, although my example doesn't take it that far. So this funeral march, infinitely more complex than the one from his earlier piano sonata, is obviously an extraordinary movement. It is, in fact, the second movement that really has no precedent in symphonic composition up until this point in history. We're going to spend considerably less time on the last two movements, worthy though they may be. The next movement is a mostly light-hearted triple-meter scherzo, back in E-flat major. Now that, or possibly a minuet, would normally be considered a given after a slow second movement. But of course, we've just experienced a one-of-a-kind slow movement, and the listener could hardly be faulted if he or she expected Beethoven to follow that movement with an equally extraordinary one. But this scherzo is not really an extraordinary movement, although it certainly has some clever and beguiling moments. And what about the program for this symphony, its dedication to Napoleon, and its often claimed status as his musical portrait? Is Beethoven somehow mocking the profoundly serious mood of the previous movement? His student, Carl Czerny, reported that Beethoven, having improvised one of his quieter, heartfelt adagios at one of his intimate salon performances, was known to break that sensitive, emotional mood suddenly by pounding on the keyboard and letting out a hearty guffaw, presumably mocking the audience members for surrendering themselves to their emotions. So is this dramatic switch in mood between the movements some sort of cosmic humor? Or is it something that has been referred to as romantic irony by 19th century scholar Ray Longyear, who listed Beethoven's blunt destruction of sublime moods as one of its prime indicators? Or perhaps the dramatic contrast in mood between the movements may simply be due to the fact, alluded to earlier, that slow movements are generally followed by lighter triple-meter movements, whether minuets or scherzos, and Beethoven is just following standard practice. I'm not sure that the answer is really in the musical details here, but let's take a look at some of them anyway. The third movement, marked Allegro Vivace, opens after a pickup note with a rather repetitive melodic figure based on staccato quarter notes alternating between the 5th and 6th scale degrees in the key, 
played pianissimo in the first violins and oboe an octave higher, and usually doubled a third lower by the seconds, with the violas, cellos, and double basses repeating the root over and over. After four bars, it begins to move up the E-flat scale with a couple of chromatic inflections along the way and head to the higher octave. Here's a simplified example, first and second violins only. Sir George Grove refers to these opening measures as an introduction to the real theme, starting in measure 7. But in fact, the opening measures and motives derived from them play an important independent role as we make our way through the movement. It is true, though, that the melodic idea introduced in bar 7, the first violin joined by the first oboe, an octave higher, seems more fully developed and self-contained. It begins with a series of repeated notes on B-flat, the fifth of the scale, and those repeated notes actually become an important thematic element by themselves, especially in the second section. They're followed here by a scale-wise descent and then a skipping motive that concludes down an octave from the starting point. Here's a simplified example, violin and oboe melody only. Here's the entire first section in an actual performance. In the second repeated section, the theme is repeated up a fifth, and various thematic elements, often in varied form, chase each other around merrily before the actual theme is repeated on the original pitch level, building ultimately to a fortissimo climax. New offbeat accents are introduced as well, in an interesting little codetta, but we are going to move on to the trio. There's nothing profoundly novel here, but the three horns project confidence and, yes, heroism, although their motives suggest hunting calls at least as much as military fanfares. But that's perhaps a quibble. If anyone is looking for an obvious link to the previous movements, at least the first movement, here it is. And yet the main theme of the trio is not simply a rousing horn call. Or maybe I should say, it doesn't remain simply a rousing horn call. It even projects a hint of poignance on its return. When the scherzo theme returns, it is not in the form of a simple da capo repeat. The original theme sneaks back in, again pianissimo, and many of the same thematic elements can be heard, but it's by no means an exact repetition, being somewhat shortened, and one of the cross-rhythm passages is now actually notated in duple meter for four bars. There's also a new coda based largely on familiar material. It begins pianissimo, but the timpani have an unusually active role to play, not usually the case when the overall volume level is so low. Donald Tovey suggested that the timpani lend a menacing aura at that point. Would that relate the movement back to the funeral march? Possibly. 
But at any rate, the entire orchestra soon begins to crescendo, and by the time we arrive at fortissimo for the concluding bars, at that point, the hyperactive timpani seems simply to be just doing their part to bring the movement to a stirring conclusion. For the finale, we're back on familiar ground. It's based on an interesting theme, consisting of both bassline and accompanying melody, sometimes heard together, sometimes heard separately. A theme that we heard earlier in the ballet music, The Creatures of Prometheus, and in the Prometheus or Eroica variations for piano, which we talked about in episode 21. And the same theme had also made an appearance in an early orchestral contradance. Listeners might well have assumed that this theme had been properly exhausted by this point, but Beethoven clearly did not think so, and so the finale is basically a theme in variations, ten of them, in fact, plus a substantial coda. We're only going to hear a few of those, however, beginning with the first. After a thunderous torrent of descending strings, the introduction pauses on a dominant chord. Then the theme is introduced, but it's actually just the bass line. After the bass line has been introduced, we launch into the first variation, which keeps the bass line theme front and center in the second violins, but adds to it a charming little countermelody in the first violins. At this point, it's not really clear if Beethoven is going to offer us anything that new or anything that transcends his earlier set of variations on the theme. Next, we're going to hear the tail end of the second variation, which is primarily also a variation of the bass line, going into variation three, which is the first variation based on the Prometheus melody rather than just the bass line. It's presented as a quieter and more sustained theme heard in the woodwinds with a bustling 16th note counterpoint against it, provided initially by the first violins against a pizzicato bass line. Soon the violins take over the theme, with the cellos and double basses responsible for the 16th note counterpoint. From that point to the end of the variation, strings and woodwinds alternate with the melody, eventually peaking in a fortissimo climax. After a brief transition, variation number four provides a fugue built on the theme's bass line, 
heard first in the first violins, then in the seconds of a fifth, and then subsequently in the violas and cellos and double basses, all the while accumulating increasingly interesting counter-subjects. Eventually it moves on to a freer development of the same motives. There's another fugal variation later on, variation number eight, based on an inversion of the theme's bass line. But we're going to conclude our excerpts with variation six. It's also built on the bass line of the theme, but this time it comes in the style of an aggressive minor key march, perhaps even a faster and more dynamic version of the funeral march from movement two abounding as it does in the second movement with repeated dotted note rhythms. So, is this a purposeful link to the second movement, Funeral March? Perhaps even to the first movement, Military Gestures, its minor key notwithstanding? It's a possibility, but I think it would be risky to postulate a direct or conscious link to the symphony's so-called program here. Theme and variation movements quite often make use of substantial stylistic variety from one variation to the next and neither minor key variations of a major key theme nor march-like variations of a seemingly unmarch-like theme would be unusual. Both of these last two variation examples, the fugue and now this minor key march, set up a very effective contrast with the gentler variations that follow them. And that strong sense of contrast between individual variations is often one of the most compelling features a theme and variations movement can possess. But is this finale, with its already much-exploited theme, worthy of the symphony as a whole? First of all, it must be admitted that the first reactions to the Eroica symphony were somewhat mixed although it did not take that long for the majority of critics and commentators to recognize the work as a great and in many ways revolutionary symphony and Beethoven's best to date. But even after that consensus view had developed, there were still some who were less certain about the merits of the scherzo movement and the finale. The idea that those two movements represented something of a letdown after the greatness of the first two movements proved to be somewhat stubborn. Perhaps it was because those last two movements had a problematic relationship with the so-called program of a musical portrait of Napoleon. Perhaps it was because some 19th century commentators simply felt that the musical ideas exploited in the last two movements were simply not up to the same quality as those presented in the first two. Those grumblings mattered little to Beethoven. He knew it was a great work, 
and he later referred to it as his own favorite of the symphonies. If the Eroica Symphony is widely recognized as one of the greatest symphonies ever composed, the work we're going to look at in the next episode, the Triple Concerto in C Major, Opus 55, has sometimes been considered somewhat problematic. But it has some fascinating features, and we'll try to uncover some of them in episode 30.